As we start this sermon, let us start with a prayer. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 2, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find this on page 758. I'm going to ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests, and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As you can see, this is Advent season. And so what is Advent? Advent celebrates two things, okay? Advent celebrates two things. One most obviously celebrates the coming of Christ. This is what we would know as Christmas. It's the first Advent. Advent literally means the coming, right? But the Advent season is also a celebration of the anticipation of, of the second coming of Christ, or what we would call the second advent. So prophecies throughout the Old Testament told or foretold the coming of Jesus Christ, and he did. And when he was lifted up into heaven, the angels would say to the disciples in Acts, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Surely as he has come to us in the flesh, as a babe, he will come to us again. But this time there will be a trumpet blast, and he will gather his people unto himself. 
Advent is also known to the outside world as the Christmas season. It's where you get ready to spend time with family and prepare gifts for one another. But have you ever wondered why we do that? Why do you put a priority on gathering with your family and sharing gifts? And have you finished your Christmas shopping? Or just me asking that, is that giving you stress? Have you not started yet? I feel as if there are two general types of people when it comes to Christmas shopping, and that's exactly it. People who are already done and people who haven't started yet. But seasonal gift giving is something that I have grown in appreciation of more and more over time. I wasn't much of a gift giver or even receiver uh, seasonally, but as the pastor here at this church, I can't tell you how many times I've been given enormously generous gifts. There are gifts that I don't think I will forget ever. I wish I could rattle down a list because there's so many. I'll just name just one. A few years ago, a number of you got me or got together and got me golf lessons, probably because you saw me and I was so horrible. And I enjoyed those golf lessons. They were not cheap, and I appreciated it very much. I remember the first golf lesson, the instructor would look at me and be like, you should be able to blast this ball. And when I didn't, I disappointed him greatly. But I really had a good time. And then a year after that, a number of you pooled money to get me golf clubs. And I am confident when I say this, I'm pretty horrible at golf still. But, and I kind of feel bad sometimes. I feel like I've wasted your money. But because of the lessons and the clubs, I think I can keep pace with the guys that invite me out. The point is, whenever I play golf, I kind of think of the church. I think of you. Because gifts as a concept is quite special. In a gift, you find out a lot of things. But in a gift, you find out about two parties, the giver and the recipient. And that's what I'd like to go over in this morning's sermon These that we have read are the first gifts of Christmas. That means they must mean something quite significant, especially if Matthew took pains in recording the details of this event. So why do we give gifts, though? Why do we give gifts? And I read some articles on modern psychology. Modern psychologists will say that from the Stone Age, we have given gifts to one another to share affection And I think that when we share gifts, that's true. We are sharing affection. But what started it all? I think that when we share gifts, we are actually not just sharing affection. We are giving adoration. I adore you. That's why we give gifts. What started it all, though? You give gifts to whom you love. But it still doesn't answer the question... And modern psychologists don't have an answer for it. Why we give gifts? Why do we choose to give gifts to share affection and to give adoration? Why is this a major way 
of sharing affection? Why is it universal almost to share gifts instead of, say, doing a little dance? And people like to see others dancing. I mean, I could do a little experiment here and I could ask someone like a brother to stand up and dance. And I'm sure that people will enjoy that dance number. But why gifts? Well, I think we give gifts to those whom we love because we have been given gifts by the one that loves us. You learn to love because you have first been loved. And who first loved us? And what did he give us? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 to 8 says, But grace has been, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. It's God who, out of his gracious heart, gave gifts to all mankind. He gives the rain to water the whole earth, and all of us benefit from that. Life, life is a gift. And life is good because the giver is good. And so I believe we give gifts because we have been given good gifts by God. But today is about a special set of gifts. And as I have stated before, the first gifts of Christmas, and we read about them in Matthew chapter 2. This is where we are first introduced to the wise men, or you may have heard the term magi. If you heard the term magi, it's because it's the Greek word that has been translated into wise men. We are supposed to take notice of these men because right before we are introduced to the magi or wise men, Matthew writes, behold. Behold, in today's vernacular, would mean something like, and hold up. It's meant for us to pause and to take special notice about what's to be written next. So while we are introduced to these wise men or magi, we are to take notice of them. I want to first say there are a lot of things we don't know. First, we don't know their names. There are traditions out there that say they were Casper, Balthazar, or Melchior, you might have heard this, but there is absolutely no evidence to back that. And that being said, we don't know how many there were either. I know we sing and we've heard it sung, we three kings, but we don't know if there were exactly three. It could have been four. It could have been five. It could have been six. It could have been 12, and so on. The Bible doesn't say, but we know there were at least two because it's plural. But that's about it. So you would imagine that people would have thought that there were maybe three because there were three gifts. But to be honest, that's not such a strong argument because when you visit dignitaries, you see many times multiple gifts were brought by even just one person. And so we don't know their names, we don't know how many there were, and we don't know exactly where they were from. We do know, however, that they were from the East or the Orient. 
for some people, that's a trigger word. I don't understand why. The Orient just means the East, right? And when you are in Israel, let's say you're in Israel, the East or the Orient covers a lot of ground and a lot of nations. So scholars of that time period would boil it down. And I think correctly, to one or one or two or one of two provinces or nations. They were either from Medo-Persia or Persia or Chaldea. Okay? And if you know your history and Bible, you know that Chaldea is Babylon and Medo-Persia is the Persian Empire. And furthermore, that these two kingdoms reigned really closely to each other. The Babylonian Empire ruled first, then came the Medo-Persian Empire. You know, then came Alexander the Great, the Greeks, and then came the Romans, which were they, which you know is the time period they are in now. But the Magi existed even from the Babylonian Empire and through the Medo-Persian Empire. So it's either one of these two places. And why is this important? We'll get into that. The Roman Empire was massive, but they couldn't really penetrate further to the east. And they couldn't go into the Parthian Empire. This is where we know as the modern-day um, Iran or in Iraq a little bit. And that's where the Medo-Persian and Babylonian Empire were. But the Iranian word for magi is magoi, and it refers to a religious priestly class among the Medes and Persians. They were noted, these Magoi or Magi, they were noted for their learning. They were what you would call the intelligentsia of the empire. They were high-class scholars. They were learned in religion and science. They were apparently monotheists. They believed that there was only one God. And we know for a fact that they were influenced by the Jews. The priestly class, some might say that they had, some might say paralleled the Levites. And we know they knew of Balaam's prophecies. It's in Numbers 24, 15. I'm going to read that for you because it's relevant to what we see today. Or in this passage in Matthew 2. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star. This is in Numbers. This is when Moses was alive. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. It's amazing because he was actually part of the Moab side. He was supposed to serve King Balak, and Balak was like, I want you to say bad things, Balaam, about these Israelites. And then he would say, actually, the Israelites are going to crush you. And Balak was like, please stop saying that. He's like, I can't, I can't help what I've been given. This was not a prophet of Israel. This is a prophet of the enemy, Balak, that wanted to kill all the Israelites. But God would speak through him so that he couldn't say anything bad about the Israelites, only good. But not only Balaam. Daniel, during the exile, was a well-known wise man 
in the Babylonian and Medo-Persian Empire. And when Daniel was able to interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, it says, Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel, after he interpreted the dream, was made to rule and was in charge of every single magi. Now, as I mentioned Babylon, the Babylonian magi were similar, but a little more different than the Medo-Persian magi. If the Medo-Persian magi had a priestly class like this, paralleling the Jewish uh, priestly or Levites, um, they were a little bit more different. They were more involved with astrology. They believed that the stars influenced events here on earth. That is not to say that these magi of the Babylonian Empire were hucksters who preyed on the naive with their horoscopes or anything like that. They were actual astrologers. They were brilliant. But from their science, they believed that when Jupiter would rise, that means you could see Jupiter in the stars, that means it came to signify a time like a birth of a king. And they now, because of astrology, we could actually calculate back around what time the position of Jupiter was at the time of the birth of Christ. And we know that at the time of Jesus' birth, that there was a great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. So a great conjunction means Jupiter and Saturn aligned. So obviously Jupiter, if you know, everybody knows this, right? This is like third grade. Jupiter is uh, orbiting the sun, right? Saturn is on the outside orbit. And when it comes and aligns with Earth, you actually see Jupiter and Saturn at the same place, at the same spot. And because they're at the same spot, it's much more brighter. And they call that the Great Conjunction. By the way, the Great Conjunction happened again in 2020. And if you missed it, you will have to wait till 2080 to maybe see it. The weather has to be nice. But the Great Conjunction is also called the Christmas star. So when planets align in a certain way, it will seem as though a bright star has appeared. Now we also know that there was a comet at that time that flew really close to Earth around this time as well, which is also fascinating. A bunch of stuff. Why? So why am I saying all this stuff about the Babylonian Magi or the Medo-Persian Magi? Because whatever phenomena there was, whether it was a planetary conjunction or the prophecies that they understood with a heavenly phenomenon to parallel that, we know, we, this is what we do know. We know that because of whatever happened, they have now arrived in Jerusalem. And they start asking, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. See, the Magi weren't random people. They were intelligent. From the gifts, we know that they had wealth. And just by these two metrics, we know that they were powerful. But look at what they were asking. If you read the question they are asking, they ask, where is the king? Not, is there a king born? Then they go, was there a king born? They don't ask that. They go, where is the king they didn't know exactly where Jesus was born, but they were sure that he was born. You don't ask a question like that unless you are sure, and you certainly don't travel for who knows how many miles, 
on camelback, I don't know, whatever it was, or caravan that they came in. Next, they ask where the king of the Jews was. It wasn't just where the king was born. They had the title of the king of the Jews, right? Why is this significant? Because every Jewish person worth his salt knew that this title was connected to the concept of the Messiah. It's not just where the king was, it's where the king of the Jews was. They knew that he was born. They knew his title. They just didn't didn't know where. So they went to the capital of Israel. They go to Jerusalem. But Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem. He was in Bethlehem. So you can imagine now this caravan with these dignitaries, this magi arriving in Jerusalem asking where the king of the Jews is and it's causing quite the ruckus. And this went around until the word got to Herod. Herod, or otherwise known as Herod the Great, was put in place as the puppet king or if you want to say it a little nicer, a client king to the Roman Empire. He would try to foster a good relationship with the people that were conquered in Israel and the Roman Empire. Herod would do things like lowering taxes. He would enact public policies that would bring about economic prosperity. He built public works, including the incredible artificial port of of the city of Caesarea, Caesarea, the fortress of Masada, and fortifications around Jerusalem. Herod also built a magnificent palace for himself on top of a man-made mountain, and that palace was called Herodium. But in order to gain further favor with the Jews, he also updated the temple to a size and lavish splendor that even exceeded Solomon's temple. The temple also came to be known as Herod's temple. Now, you may, now, after hearing this part, you might be like, hmm. But Herod also identified as a Jew. He identified as a Jew. He wasn't a Jew, though. He was an Edomite. He didn't even practice Jewish law or custom. He just identified as a Jew. You might think, that's weird and self-serving and totally not based on reality if you just identify with whatever you want to identify with. And then you would be right, because Herod had a dark side. He feared potential rivals. To what degree, you might ask, because, you know, honestly, if you're the king, who doesn't fear, to a certain degree, rivals? Well, he had his wife's brother, Aristobulus, the high priest, drowned in the swimming pool in his palace, He put to death 46 members of the Sanhedrin. He killed his mother-in-law. He also had his wife, Mariamne, murdered along with two of their sons as he considered them potential rivals with legitimate claim to the throne because of their Hasmonean lineage. Augustus Caesar is reported to have said of Herod, It's better to be Herod's dog than to be one of his children. So this is the kind of king that was in power at the time. 
And when word got to Herod that these foreign dignitaries, these magi, were looking for where the king of the Jews was born, it says here in our Bible that he was troubled. That word for troubled is not what it would mean today. Because if you say, oh, I'm a little troubled, it means you're a little vexed. But troubled is from the word terasso, which means that Herod was terasso. Herod was beside himself. It means his world was turned upside down. It means the same, the same word is used in Matthew chapter 14, 26. But when the disciples saw him, meaning Jesus, walking on the sea, they were terasso and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. That word terasso there in 14, 26 is translated as terrified. Herod was terrified. And when a tyrant is beside himself, terrified, all of Jerusalem also, terrified. And so Herod calls all the chief priests and scribes, the ones that he didn't kill yet, and asks them what? Where is the Christ to be born? Even he knew. See, look at the wordage here. He knew that the king of the Jews meant Christ or Messiah. Even he knew that much. He just didn't know where either. So he asks them, and they tell him, Bethlehem, because they knew what the prophet Micah said. So Herod calls these wise men, these dignitaries, these potential kingmakers, because that's how he would have seen them. People from a rival nation come to set up maybe their own vassal, their own vassal king, and he asks them around what time they saw the star appear. We know why he asks this, because later on in the chapter, Herod orders a massacre of contemptible proportions when he orders the murder of all male children under the age of two. I think killing babies is the most contemptible form of murder, and these are the helpless who didn't even begin to live life. A gift from God that is taken away from them, they are murdered. And this is what Herod did. But after he ascertains the general time that Christ would have been born, he tells the Magi to diligently search for him. That means with incredible care and accuracy, search for this Christ so that he also could come and worship him, which is obviously a lie. The Magi still didn't know, but when they went out, the star, it says, appeared again and this time it rested over the place where Jesus was. To me, this is a supernatural event, not merely an astrological phenomenon. And the Magi recognized this star, and this time it rested, or literally, it says it stood on top or over the place where the child was, as if the star was showing them this is where Jesus is. And when they saw Jesus, it says they fell down and worshipped him. These two words imply that they prostrated themselves in worship before this baby. This act of worship, this prostration, you don't do to royalty. Prostration you do to deity. You don't do a prostration before kings. You prostrate yourself before God. But after they had worshipped the Christ, they would offer him three gifts. 
Why these three gifts, though? So the church father Origen also asked this question, why these three gifts? And he came up with three answers. Gold, because he's a king. Frankincense, because he's a god. And myrrh, because he's a man. Gold, because he's a king. Frankincense, because he's a god. And myrrh, because he's a man. That meant the Magi must have known who Jesus was. Well, is this true? Is this true? Do we have any evidence and support from the Bible that this is what it represented? Well, gold is exclusive, a province of royalty. Only the king had the golden scepter. And what do you give a king who has everything? If you were to visit a king and you were to bring gifts to the king, and this king had everything, what do you bring? When Queen Sheba visited King Solomon in all his riches, there was no one as rich as Solomon at the time, and there's no other Israel king as rich ever than Solomon. Queen Sheba would bring what? She would bring 120 talents of gold. And just as a measure of reference, each talent, a talent is around 60 to 77 pounds. So multiply that by 120. So what do you give a king who has everything? You give gold. Gold is a precious metal. And it was a valuable, and it still is a very valuable commodity. Its value could maybe finance Joseph and Mary's trip to Egypt. The Bible doesn't tell us The significance of these three gifts or the gold, the significance of the gold in particular, but there is a tradition, there is a meaning, right? And gold is a symbol of this kind of royalty and even divinity. The Ark of the Covenant was overlaid with gold. The gift of gold to Christ was symbolic of his divinity. It was symbolic of his kingship, both, both of them. What about frankincense? What is frankincense? Well, it's like what it sounds like. It's incense. But frankincense is not just incense. It's pure incense. It's the highest, finest quality incense. You would put frankincense in a treasure chest. That's how precious frankincense was. And it was almost exclusively used for worship. When you give a burnt offering to, to God, you would use frankincense. Frankincense is a white resin or gum. It's obtained from a tree by making incisions in the bark and allowing the gum to fall out. It is highly fragrant when burned and was therefore used in worship. It is used as a burnt offering that is a pleasant or pleasing offering to God. We see this in Exodus 30, 34. Frankincense is a symbol of holiness and righteousness. The gift of frankincense to Christ, the child Christ, was symbolic of than his willingness to become a sacrifice, though, wholly giving himself up, analogous then to a burnt offering. There are all these symbolisms that are coming into play when you understand what frankincense was. Not only do you give frankincense as an offering, but its symbolicness, it symbolizes Christ being able or being willing to give himself as a burnt offering himself. Well, now, what about myrrh? Myrrh has a pleasant scent. It is a perfume. It is very expensive. And when it's mixed with other liquids, it's used to dull pain, like on the cross. 
we see that in Matthew 15, 23, uh, Mark 15, 23, Matthew 27, 34, it's referred to as gall, right? Myrrh was also a product of Arabia. It's obtained from a tree in the same manner as frankincense. It was a spice used also in embalming. Myrrh symbolizes, though, bitterness, suffering, and affliction. The baby Jesus would grow to suffer greatly as a man and would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on the cross for all who would believe in him. The people that would love him would then, when they would bury his body, would embalm the body with a mixture of myrrh and other spices. All these three gifts, all these three gifts, they have deep meaning because the Magi would come and they would know the recipient of the gift. The recipient of the gift is not just some random king. It's not just random person. They knew that this was the Christ. That's how you know, because you saw the gift. It shows what the giver is giving. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. And I think, in, the, in a sense, Origen was pretty right. He was pretty on the money. God, king, man, all these things are relevant, and they knew what they were doing when they would offer him these three gifts, and Matthew would record it. So what does that have to do with us now? Now that you know that Magi prepared these intricate, specific, and also incredibly beautiful, precious, and rare gifts, what does that have to say about us? You see, Advent is a time in our church history where Christians, and it has been throughout its history, would reverently prepare themselves to celebrate Christmas. We have been shown a story of the Magi who traveled an incredible journey to present the most precious gifts. Why? Because they knew who they were giving it to. But as we worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, it should remind us through this word who we are offering worship to. Who is it that we are sitting now offering our sacrifices to? And in what manner we should prepare our hearts and our lives and our offerings to give Him. And so if anything, the gifts of the Magi should point to us now sitting here on our Sunday service, examining our hearts, especially as we enter into the time of communion, but examining our hearts to also see what kind of gifts you are offering the king. What is your heart? Where is your attitude? Where is your offering? Do you know who you are giving it to? And do you know what kind of offering you are bringing because the Magi knew. And I pray that we do as well and our offerings would be pleasing to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story of the Magi, reminding us not only of our duties as your disciples and servants, reminding us about who 
we are giving these gifts to, who we are lifting up our sacrifices and offerings. Oh God, forgive us when we took it in a lax manner, in a heart that is not worthy of the true majesty that you bear. King of kings, Lord of lords. And Lord, in our hearts and lives of repentance, help us now to give you a worship that is worthy of your name. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what we have learned and what we have been given in his word.